We're, we're using Hebrews chapter number 11, the hall of faith, the heroes of faith, as a launching point to teach about uh, Old Testament characters. So let, let me begin with a personal observation. Thank you, Chris. Let's pull that back because I'll trip over it and knock it in the floor and fall and break my leg. Uh, here, here's my personal assessment from this week. My conclusion about me, and I'm not projecting it on you. Well, I am projecting on you, sorry. Uh, I am projecting it on you, but here's my assessment of me. I've decided that my life story just cannot be about how many cheeseburgers a man can eat in a lifetime, about how many pairs of Nikes and Adidas he can wear out, about how many cars he can drive, about how many square feet he can live in, about how many acres he owns, or since you're from Texas, how many cows he has. That cannot be the measure of our lives. Now, let me give you the other side of the coin. I intend to live as good as God will bless me. That's the other side of the coin. Because I also learned from Scripture... There's some books in there that make no sense unless you understand this, and they were put in, put in your Bible partly to teach you this, that this is your portion under the sun. Let me translate. The material blessings that you have have been given to you by God. That's the teaching from Solomon and Jesus' brother James, that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of light, with whom is no variableness nor shadow of turning. And God has blessed you material materially, that is your portion, enjoy it. But it's not the meaning of life. But it's yours to enjoy. And if you really see it rightly, it's yours to be a steward of, both to enjoy and then to bless others with, to, to use and enjoy, but also to use as a tool. Uh, one of the things I enjoy teaching, guys know I love uh, watching the stock market and I love uh, uh, trying to outguess the world, you know, and, and, and trade every once in a while. And so if you're in your 20s, come and see me, and I'd love to show you how to get in the game and play it. Uh, uh, but I want you to know that uh, money's not the game. It's a tool. And the earlier in your 20s, or if you're way past that already, the earlier you wake up to money is a tool. It's not the end game. It's something that makes something. And money reproduces itself, and money reproduces your ability to bless others and to spread the God. The sooner you really understand what the money is given for and how God blesses you, I think the better and happier your life is going to be. Here's my assessment of me, and I'm going to project it onto you. I want to make a difference in this world. I want to live a life that pleases God, and that when it's said and done, my life has lifted other people, both to know and to follow Jesus Christ. I think this is more the meaning of life. And I think this is what you're looking for too. This is having life and having it more abundantly that Jesus is talking about. Enjoy what you have, but it's not just for you to hoard. It's for you to be blessed and to bless others with. Now, the Bible is telling a story where the conquerors are not the main story of the Bible. The Bible is telling a story where the main characters in the story are men and women who live by faith. 
these are the way the Bible shapes human history. The story that God wants to tell is not about Republicans and Democrats and Caesars and kings and queens, although they're in the book. The story God wants to tell is that God is shaping this world through a group of people, His people, who are people of faith. And ultimately, the human story, when it's all said and done, will be the story of those who lived by faith. This is the human story that God wants to tell. And when the New Testament writers update the story from the Old Testament, reapply it in the first century, and when the New Testament authors tell their audience the story freshly, they use the Old Testament characters because that is their Bible. New Testament's not written. And they use the Old Testament characters and the Old Testament Bible to tell that story and reapply it freshly. These authors in the New Testament keep using a particular theme verse from the old prophet Habakkuk. The book of Romans is built around one of these key verses. The book of Hebrews is built around one of these key verses. Don't be shocked when the New Testament writers look backwards and they grab a phrase from one of the prophets and they build entire letters and writings to God's people. In this case, they've built part of their thesis around Habakkuk 2.4, which says this, but the righteous one will live by his faith. Let me give it to you in KJV, which I grew up on. Now the just shall live by faith. So these New Testament writers are saying, lives of faith are what change the world. Lives of faith are what get God's attention. Lives of faith are what win God's approval. Lives of faith are ultimately how God is going to get this world on track. Do you know where you can find people of faith on a Sunday morning? Anybody got a guess? And so God is saying to you from the New Testament, this is the New Testament writers, particularly Paul, writing this type of language, that God is going to change the world through His church. This is the message one of the messages that's being told in the New Testament. And you say, well, I, you know, we're just nobodies. You know, it's, it's, it's presidents and it's congressmen and it's, it's big shots who change the world. That has never been the story of the Bible and it's not the story of your generation either. America's got lots of problems. Other nations have also lots of problems. You know how the world is in the business of getting humanity on track? Through people of faith which means through the church in this generation, through the church of Jesus Christ. So the, the author of Hebrews, now I, I covered this last week, but I'm recapping for you. The author of Hebrews then gives us a word definition of faith. What is faith? I'm reading Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. Let me give it to you in a little simpler English. Faith is, the, is living... Gosh, we have an escapee this morning from cell block number three over there. I thought Brady's going to have to tackle her before she rushed the pastor. Honey, now you just buckle in over there. Let me give you the word definition of faith. Faith is living as though God and the things we hope for are real. Living as though the unseen things are real. I'll even simplify, living your life this week as though God is really real, that's living by faith. 
You say, well, that's easy. Not as easy as you think. More challenging than you might imagine. But that is what God is calling us to do. So then the author of Hebrews tells you, well, what if, if, we, if we do that, what does God do? If we do our part, then what does God do with his part? And here's what the author says. The result of living by faith, here it is, Hebrews 11.2. For by it, by faith, our ancestors won God's approval. The pastor writing Hebrews, saying to his first century audience, says, you want to win God's approval, you want life that matters, you want life that changes the world, you want life that will do something, living by faith wins God's approval. You say, but I'm a sinner. By faith, God counts your faith as righteousness. Talk about that next week. Faith wins God's approval. So now the pastor is going to show his audience what living by faith looks like, because you and I are not good with words. We're much better with pictures. We're not good with theological ramblings. We're much better with human stories. If you can tell us a human story, we get it. So let me digress just a moment to say this to you. The people we're going to talk about in these weeks of the spring, these Bible characters, these are real people. Just as real as you looking in the mirror when you were brushing your teeth this morning. These are real people who made incredibly bad decisions sometimes. Can anybody feel some commonality with them right now? These are flawed people who get themselves into big time trouble. Because they make bad choices and they do stupid boneheaded things sometimes. But these people had faith in a real God a creator God, an all-powerful God, who they saw was much bigger than their boneheaded mistakes. They had faith in a real God who was much bigger than their bad choices. And by faith, they won God's approval even though they did stupid things. Well, praise God for that. Now I feel like I can breathe a little easier right now because I know my life and you know your life. And that's why these people are put into the Bible. And living by faith is what made the difference and made them difference makers in the human story that God wants to tell in the Bible. And so we are looking at these people's lives because in the way that faith made them difference makers in their generation, this is what God's trying to do through you in your generation. Now, we always look at these people in the Bible and say, oh, I can never be like them. These people muck it up all the time. You muck it up all the time. You're just like these people. <laughs> these are not people up on a pedestal. These are people that God loved and He approved them because they lived by faith, although they made a million mistakes. It was not their perfect living that put them on that pedestal of hero of faith it is God's grace that lifted them onto that pedestal and it's the same thing God's doing through your life if you'll yield your life to him and let the Holy Spirit transform you the reason we look at these humans is because we do better with human stories and when you rub up against these people when you make human contact with them through the pages and the reading of your Bible now you can say to the Holy Spirit God whatever you put in these people Put that in me this morning 
God, whatever you've put into Abraham and Noah and Enoch and Abel and allowed them to walk in a, in a crazy, mixed-up world and win your approval, God, please put that in me because I live in a crazy, mixed-up, scared world and I want to win your approval as well. I want to please you with my life. We need the human element. We need to yield to the Spirit and let Him then transform us as we see these human stories. Now, let, let me rant about something that's near and dear to my heart. <clears throat> For many generations, Christianity has been trying to preach and to lecture people into spiritual maturity. Listen carefully to your pastor this morning. It does not work. You can preach till, till your lungs are gone, and you will not preach people into spiritual maturity. Preaching in the church service and lecturing to people one hour a week does not transform them into spiritually mature people who live by faith. We have tried it for a hundred years in America and we have not yet been able to reproduce Christians who look like the first century Christians. The American church needs to wake up and realize a reform is needed. We are broken. And what's broken is our approach to walking by faith and generating Christians. You do not... Pastor, I just want you to, to speak to my teenagers. I cannot in 40 minutes transform your child's life from this stage. They need somebody who will walk with them every week of their life. Studies show they need relationships with at least three adults in our youth department. Three adults besides their parents that they look up to who walk with them every week of their life through their high school years and their junior high years. Then they need to be put into ministry in their church, making coffee, serving in the nursery, and helping with junior church. And by the time they get 19 or 20, they won't hate God. They'll believe it's real. They'll stray for a few years. And when they graduate college, they'll be back. Or when they have children, they're going to plug back into the church if they've strayed and they're going to serve God. Now that's the goal around here. Multi-generational Christians living by faith who make a difference. We will not lecture anyone into spiritual maturity. That's not the way Jesus did it. The way you do it is you do what He commanded us in Matthew 28. Go and make disciples. Relational disciples. You want to change somebody's life? Then dedicate your kitchen table to Jesus Christ on this altar this morning. And that Letty, I, I, was, I asked the other night, where's Letty at, Jeff? He said, let me show you. And he, he, he showed me a beautiful picture of you at the kitchen table with a group of women with your Bibles open. That's where we change people's lives, right there. That's how you do it. And you walk with them and you go on vacation with them and you love them and you tell play dates together and you go eat pizzas together and you cry together and you go to hospital visit. This is how you change someone's life. Jesus didn't say, go, go to church and learn of me. He said, follow me. Learn of me. Come on. Let's go. Let's hang out together. Let's do life together. Now this morning as we open the Bible and we see the lives of these ancient Christians... We're making contact with the lives of people who walked by faith. I want you just to let your life come into contact with these people. You'll have to do it in your, in your head and in your heart. And when you see their lives and you see what they're living through, I just want you to pray, God, help me to walk by faith. Today I want to deal with six verses from Hebrews chapter number 11. 
you discover three examples of living by faith. Noah, Abraham, and Sarah. Noah is very important because he's a transitional character in the Bible. He takes you from the antediluvian era, pre-flood, that's all the word means, to the post-diluvian era, after the flood. So if you're reading a theological book and you see anti or post-diluvian, just before and after the flood, and Noah's the guy there that bridges the flood because there's nobody left, okay? Now that's important. His genealogy and then Abraham, the next character's genealogy, you'll see them found in Genesis 5 leading up to Abraham, and then you'll see them in Genesis 11, 10 and 11 as you transition to the next character in the story. Noah is the next character in the story. He's the last. He's Abel, Enoch, Noah. He's the third and last anti-before-the-flood character that the writer of Hebrews is looking back and said, you know what living by faith looks like? Noah. Noah is what faith looks like. And when I say Noah, I want to throw in there, and Noah's wife, Miss Noah? I don't even know her name, but I guarantee you she had every bit as much faith as Noah. And then Noah's three sons and their three wives. There are eight people really included in the name Noah. It's Noah and his family. I'm reading from Hebrews 11:7 now. By faith, all by faith are the words that begin all through Hebrews 11. Here, you'll if you just go through and underline by faith, you'll have a whole list. Okay, by faith, Noah, after he was warned about what was not yet seen. Ladies and gentlemen, you have to ask the question right here: What was not yet seen? Rain. Ships on land, (laughs) thunder, lightning, hail, flash flooding, gully washer, frog floater, the stuff you're very familiar with here in North Texas. Evidently, they had never seen that. The weather patterns were not thus in the ancient world. That's all I can tell you. Or you can read this a little different way. They believed in things not seen. You know what else had never been seen? Global wrath of God. The global judgment of God being poured out upon the earth. God had hoped. He had been patient. He had tolerated their nonsense. He took Enoch and he was not. And now some generations are still passing and God says, I'm done. You've crossed my line now. And I will fix this mess since you cannot get it under control. They had never seen that. Listen, in... This world where people think God is only love, I challenge you to go back and read my, uh, hear my series in uh, Apostles' Creed where we talk about God the Father. Both and are two key words for you to understand. He is both a God of love and a God of judgment, and that is how he is described in the most prominent God verse in the entire Bible, one of the most quoted verses by the other Bible authors. Learn who God really is before you form an opinion Of him and try to, he really is what he describes himself to be. They'd never seen this side of God. Okay? So here's why the verse reads By faith, Noah, after he was warned about what was not yet seen, and he was motivated by godly fear, which now I'm learning from the Bible could be a good thing. Godly fear could be a positive motivation in your life. He built an ark to deliver his family, and by faith, he condemned the world. Because he walked by faith and they didn't. That's all it means. And he became an heir. That means you inherit something. 
and what he's about to inherit is righteousness that comes by faith. God's approval that comes by faith. And because he's about to inherit that, he's also about to inherit the blessings that come with being God's child, about to inherit the whole earth. By the way, that's exactly what's been promised to you in the New Testament, but that's maybe a sermon for another day. So now in your Bibles, I'm I'm flying at 35,000 feet this morning, okay? So now in your Bibles, the story of Noah, if you want to read it this week, which will make a lot more sense now that I'm giving you the framework. The story of Noah is found in Genesis 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10. These chapters cover the story that I'm telling you right now. When Genesis 6 opens, the first verses are introductory, and they give you a state of the state, state of the human affairs address. A little state of the union happens in Genesis chapter number 6. And here is the state of the union. When the Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth, and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time, This is not a flattering report of how civilization has devolved. Humanity was continually and only wicked and evil. The Lord, verse 6, regretted that He had made man on the earth. And He was deeply grieved. His heart was broken because of what the humans did in their rebellion against God. Then the Lord said... I will wipe mankind whom I have created off of the face of the earth. Listen, you've never read more somber phrase than that one right there. God said this has gotten to the point of absolute wickedness. Only evil continually all the time. My heart grieves for what creation I love creation, I made a beautiful creation, I love humanity, but what has sin devolved this mess into? And the humans don't care. They're just giving God, you know, the other side of their face, and they're just walking away from God, and they're in rebellion, and the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I've created off the face of the earth, together with the animals, creatures that crawl, and birds in the sky, for I regret that I've made them. You say, well, it's going to be bad news on planet Earth. Yes, but here's how the story the Bible authors are telling always have this little ray of hope. Noah, however, found favor with the Lord. Here is the story that's being retold in circular form. World gone crazy. Faithful remnant remains. God takes care of the mess. Faithful remnant have a fresh start. The people who walk by faith get a fresh start and a do-over in the grace of God. Now let me summarize the story of Noah. Here's a man who found God's favor in the midst of a society gone crazy. You know they had incredible lifespans as recorded in the book of Genesis. The story says that Noah and his sons built the ark for 120 years. At the same time, he's preaching to his generation for 120 years. And for 120 years, he preached that God was going to judge the world. We needed to repent of our rebellion and follow God and live by faith. And in that 120 years of preaching, he had not one single convert. Now, right here, I just want to pause the story and say to our wonderful Cornerstone family, you refuse to go to heaven until you've made a disciple, please. 
Would you throw yourself on your knees at the end of the service and say to God, God, by your grace, in this new year, I want to help somebody find you as Savior and disciple them. Do, listen, I want you to dig your heels in and you tell God, I refuse to go to heaven until you let me make a disciple. (laughs) God, I'm going to do it with your help. God, you bring someone into me. All I'm saying to you is this. Do not go empty-handed, ladies and gentlemen. Make your life count. Invest in the lives of others. Noah preached for 120 years and had not one single convert but his own family. Now, I'm going to give you the positive side. If your own family is what you get to heaven with you, then praise God, you made a difference. No parent is unsuccessful in their Christian walk if their children are on their way to heaven. So there's that, right? Okay, so get your kids in. Now try to find someone else. That's my challenge to you today. But no one listened to Noah's message. He had no converts other than his family. And he told them, pursue God. Repent of your rebellion. The Creator wants a people. He wants a nation of people who will pursue Him. Be those people. And Noah asked his peers to repent uh, and follow God. But not one person would. And it's that constant theme. World gone crazy. One family, one man, one individual pursuing God. God judges the world, rescues the people of faith, and restarts the human project and gets it back on track. Genesis chapter 6 to 10 are about God's judgment, uh, about Noah's story, but God's judgment on the antediluvian world. And there's some of the darkest writings in all of the Bible. The flood story, stay with me, is some of the darkest Hour of humanity. It's some of the most uh, gut-wrenching reading you'll do in the Scripture. Uh, Maybe you've not thought through this situation. Moses, as he's writing Genesis, moves the story as quick as he can to tell the story but not linger on the human scars. But Noah and his family would have lasting emotional scars. Listen, you want to have a time of meditation. You put Noah's sandals on. And you walk in them for 30 minutes of reflection this week. He would have lasting, and his family, his children, his wife, they would have had PTSD from this event that I don't know they would ever get over in their entire lives. I am sure that years later, as they struggled in the night to find some sleep, they are reliving the human trauma of global judgment. The screams of terror that they endured outside the walls of the ark. The cries of men and women and children. The fists pounding on the exterior of the ark. The screams, let us in, let us in. The hands trying to find purchase on the outside of the boat. Them on the inside, separated by four or six or eight inches. And powerless to save the people on the outside. Once God sealed the door, it could not be opened. Only a year later to disembark the ark. And what do they find? But a world littered with death. Can you imagine the bodies? 
Can you imagine the bones, the, 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 the animals, the people, the, to find a world littered with death, a world that's been completely reshaped by the cataclysm of global flood. When they got out of the ark, it was like landing on a different planet, covered in death, where only you and your family members are the, the only living humans. Can you imagine the loneliness? Can you imagine reliving the cries? Can you imagine walking off the ark and looking at the claw marks and the broken fingernails all around the ark? Can, can you relive some of that trauma with them? They face loneliness. They face depression. Yeah, they faced a very real thing called survivor's guilt. And they had to process that. Moses uh, gives you one little snippet. And Noah began to be a husbandman. He planted a vineyard and he got drunk. Yeah, probably just as quick as he could. Probably just as quick as he could. Don't judge him. I'm just telling you, ladies and gentlemen, don't judge him. And I don't think Moses wrote that to judge him. I think Moses wrote that to say, look at the condition they're in. They're having to restart human civilization, and they have, they've, lived, they've just lived through something that's really inexplicable. I have no words to describe the trauma that they lived through. Now, let, let me just say this, and I'm not kicking at you because I may be, this may get real close to home for some of you. It's fascinating to see how the modern Christian community has interpreted the story of Noah and how we have retold it to our children. Christianity redeveloped the story of Noah and retold it as a cute and happy Noah's Ark nursery thing. Can you imagine decorating your child's nursery in something that represents God's judgment upon the world and the eradication of mankind and global genocide? You might as well hang a skull and crossbones in your child's nursery and paper the wall in tombstones. Now, understand, and I'm not kicking at you. I may have done the same thing. I don't know what our nursery was. I can't even remember, Susan. Was it death and destruction? I can't remember. <laughs> yeah. But do you understand what happens when we don't know how the stories really fit into the Bible? You come away with a completely different interpret. Oh, look how look at the animals and how cute all of this is. God's about to wipe them out and give them PTSD for their lifetimes. You say why? He's going to save that family though because they live by faith. And here's what they believe that God would not give up on the humans that he loved. Let me ask you, I don't know what kind of mess your life is in this morning. But here's what I do know. God will not give up on the people he loves. If you'll just make any kind of move of faith in his direction, he will meet you. Amen. And he'll come to you. And he'll forgive you of your sins. And he'll help you try to reorder your life and move beyond the bad decisions that you've made. God has his heart. Now listen carefully. This is important. God has his heart set on an idea. God has his heart set on having a people that will be his people. Which is why in Genesis chapter number 2 and 3, he made people. Because God wants people 
to be in a relationship with who are angled mirrors reflecting the glory of God in his own image. He wants people to be in his image. He wants people who will love him, who will worship him, who will fellowship with him, and who will be a reflection of his goodness to this creation. He wants people who will be kings and queens of this planet. He wants people who will be good stewards of planet Earth and not trash it. He wants people who will cultivate it and create it and build bridges and roads and write musical pieces and paint beautiful pictures and write children's books and build beautiful buildings and cultivate gardens and invest in other people and take what He's given them and develop it. For God wants people who reflect Him and love Him and have given their whole devotion and heart to follow Him. And in the preaching of Jesus, Noah pops up. You wouldn't be surprised, would you? Jesus actually uses Noah in his own sermon as an example of the eschatological human condition. Now, eschatological means end times. That means it hadn't happened yet still. But we could be getting pretty close. You want to know what the world's going to look like in the end times, and you may be in them. But if you want to know what it's going to look like, Jesus told you. And he used Noah as an example. Let me read it for you. Jesus speaking. Matthew 24. As the days of Noah were... Now, do you know what the days of Noah were like? I think I've explained enough, right? As the days of Noah were, so the coming of the Son of Man will be. Son of Man is pet phrase Jesus has for himself. So shall the coming of Jesus be. For in those days before the flood, antediluvian... They were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah boarded the ark. They didn't know until the flood came and swept them all away. This is the way the coming of the Son of Man will be. Jesus said the world just goes on ignoring God and living in rebellion of God. And there's a remnant living by faith crying out to a world that's sick with sin and rebellion. And God's people are saying there is a bigger purpose than eating pizza and building houses and putting money in. There is a bigger purpose to life. Live by faith. Be God's people. Let's make disciples. Let let, let the church change the world. And he said, but the world is asleep to the message. And one day, the Lord will come and judgment. He will bring judgment for those who have rebelled against Him. And he said, and they're oblivious to it just as they ignored the preaching of Noah. It also, Noah shows up in the preaching of Peter, the apostle. Let me read it real quickly. In the preaching of Peter, the apostle, Noah stands as an example, not of the in world, but how, uh, as an example of how God rescues you, God's people, from trials, while at the same time judging those who rebel against God in a sinful world. Watch what Peter says, 2 Peter 2, 5. And if he, God, didn't spare the ancient world, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, his children and their wives, when he brought the flood on the world, the ungodly, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. Now, if you go to sleep after this, lock on to that phrase, because you're going to need it this week when you get into a trial. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. God can rescue you from whatever mess you're in. You say, but I've got someone persecuting me, and God knows how to punish the ungodly. And He can do it simultaneously. This is what God specializes in, doing things the world can't figure out. He has a way of judging the the rebels against Him, and a way of delivering His children all in a miraculous way. Now, 
Uh, let me talk about covenant real quick. I'm flying high. So God makes a covenant with Noah and all of humanity. He, Noah is hum, our representatives, if you will, the human representatives. And God makes a covenant with Noah and he says, I'll not destroy the world by flood again. It hurts my heart that this had to happen. We've got a good reset going now. Noah, hopefully this will fix it. Go and build a nation now that will be God's people and you all follow me and teach people how to live my faith and how to love me and serve me and be good stewards of the planet. I've given you all a new and a fresh beginning. But the effects of the flood lasted only a short while. This is the testimony of Moses now writing the book of Genesis. Moses is telling this story, and he's like, yeah, you would think that would fix it, right? But no, it did not. The effects of the flood lasted only a short while, and as the humans repopulated and developed civilizations and they developed great cities, they rebelled against God. They did not want to be God's people, and they worshipped idols, and they said, we'll not listen to God, we'll do whatever we want to do. And their sinful nature drove the humans crazy again with a desire to conquer their neighbor, with a desire to dominate, with a desire for power and for conquest. And so after the flood, humanity got together and they reached, human civilization reached its magnum opus, reached its big work in the post-Diluvian world with their own version of a Build Back Better project. It's the only way I know to describe it so that you'll really get it. Humanity got together and said, well, that flood was a bad deal. Let's repop. All right, now we're growing. Now we're going. Now we're going. Listen, now let's build back better. And they called their Build Back Better project the Tower of Babel, which later will become Babylon. Humanity thumbed their collective noses at God and they said, we will not have you rule over us. We will do what we darn well please. It's recorded like this in the scripture, Genesis 11. The whole earth had the same language and vocabulary, and they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the sky. Let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered throughout the earth. The Lord then said, If they have begun to do this as one people, all having the same language, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. The Godhead speaking within itself now said this, Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so they will not understand one another's speech. So from there the Lord scattered them throughout the earth. Here's what Moses is saying in the human story. The Lord scattered them throughout the earth. They were all clumped up together in these metropolises. And they stopped building the city. They couldn't communicate. (laughs) Therefore, it is called Babylon. For there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them throughout the earth. Now, I'm going to let you interpret the ancient civilization's intent. I'll give you some suggestions, but I'll let you do your own exegesis this morning. Maybe they said something like this. We will not let God judge us again. We know what happened some generations back with this global judgment of the flood and we will never let God do that to humanity again we will build a tower taller than the waves we will build a human project that reaches to the sky so God 
Ha! Or maybe they said, we will build to heaven because we are the only gods on this planet. We recognize no other. God, eh, that's what we think. Or maybe they said, we'll do whatever we want to do. And we will not be told what to do. And if we all unify together, ladies and gentlemen, God cannot tell us what to do. Everyone join hands and let's have a united human agreement here that we will stick together and we will do whatever we want to do, but we will not let God tell us what to do. So God, ha. And you just don't want to throw the gauntlet down with God's all I'm saying. And the Lord said, we will go down. And we will deal with this mess once again. And God confounded the languages and he turned this one world union of the ancient civilization and it just devolved into a divided nation of people, thwarted what they were trying to do. Nobody could get along and work together. And this one world human domination just fell apart. So the flood did not solve the human rebellion. And so now you're at a history timeline where the world still has not realized God's goal of a nation of people who are loyal to God. Let me say it another way. Still in the story. We're after the flood. We're past Babylon, Babel. We're still to a point in the story in Genesis. We've gone 11 chapters into Genesis. And there still is not a people that are God's people, which is the whole point of planet Earth and creation. Moses is telling a story of the world, the human project, off the rails. And you need to ask yourself at this point, when Moses is writing the book of Genesis, why is he including this bit in the story? Why is Moses writing about this bit of flood and this bit of the Tower of Babel? Why is this being included in the story? Because Moses wants you to know there are no people of God. Because what Moses is writing is the first five books of the Bible that tells Israel how there came to be a people of God. Is that making sense now? Moses is answering the question, how did we get here? Moses is telling Israel the answer because there was no people of God. And God's going bananas trying to work with humanity who keeps rebelling against Him. And He keeps covenanting and then they break it and He resets and He tries with the remnant. And He cannot get the sinful humans to follow Him and to love Him like He loves us. And so it's this vicious cycle of rebellion. Because now Moses is about to tell the story of Abraham. And Abraham is going to answer the question why there is an Israel. How God finally got his people. Abraham is the key to that story. Stay with me a few more minutes. I'm reading Hebrews 11 now. The preacher in Hebrew says, let's move past Noah because now we've come to the main character of the book of Genesis. As a matter of fact, one of the main characters in all the Bible, if there's like a top ten list, this guy is in it. He may be in the top five. He might even be in the top three. He's important to the story the Bible's trying to tell Noah, uh, Abraham. Hebrews 11.8. By faith... Abraham, when he was called, here's a beautiful word, did what? He obeyed. Well, if God speaks to your heart, there's the answer right there. You need to learn to say to Holy Spirit, I hear you. 
I, I know what you're saying to me. Yes, is my answer. Okay? Help me to do what you're asking me to do right now. And with your help, I will give it my best shot. That's something we all need to practice every day of our lives. So now, Abraham heard God and he obeyed. And he set out for a place that he was going to receive as an inheritance. He went out. So he left one country to go to another country that God was going to give him, even though he did not know where he was going. That's the way some of you go on vacation. You just get in, put it in drive, and you go and you say, where are we going? I don't know. Let's just see where the road leads us. Now, in this case, God was going to take him somewhere, but God had not told him where he was going. Now, it takes faith to pack your bags, kiss your loved ones goodbye, say goodbye to your mom and dad, leave your family behind, Grab your wife, and in this case, he grabs his nephew, and out they go. And uh, you say, where are you going? I bet all of his friends said, hey, I see you packing the, you know, the minivan. Uh, where are you going, man? We're going to miss you. I don't really know where I'm going, but I'm going to a country that God's about to give me. You're going to get a country? Well, where is it? I don't really know. What does it look like? I have no idea. Is it a big country or a little country? Wouldn't know. You're nuts, man. No. He's living by faith. Verse 9, by faith. He stayed as a foreigner in that land of promise. Never had a house. Well, right there, my wife would leave me, I think. (laughs) Yours too. Never had a house. He stayed in tents, as did his son Isaac and his grandson Jacob, co-heirs of the same promise. You say, why did he never build a city because he was looking forward to a city that had foundations whose architect and builder is God. Something we'll talk about more in the coming weeks. Now now let me, again, let me fly over Abraham. You stay with me just a minute. Abraham was a Gentile. At this point in the story, there is no such thing as a Jew. No one's heard of a Jew. There's no Hebrew. There is no Israel. There are ancient nations, but none of them are Jewish or Israel because there is no such thing. God has no people. Creation is not living up to its purpose. So God comes to Abraham and makes a promise. In the Bible, this solemn promise is called a covenant. And uh, uh, Pastor Jeremy will have to help me this week. Jeremy, you worshiping this morning? Good, there you are. Wasn't that series called Framework, I think? Covenant series. Help me with that this week. Let's load it up because the people need to revisit the, fr- oh, sorry, the framework, the, the covenants series. If you understand covenants, you'll understand the story the Bible is telling. So God comes to Abraham and he makes this solemn promise covenant with Abraham. And he said, Abraham, I'm going to use you to reset the human project. You're going to wipe them all out again? Nope, not like that. Promised I wouldn't do it. So here's what I'm going to do instead. I'm just going to start a new nation with you. I want you and your wife to go wherever I tell you to go, leave your family behind, and I'm going to build an entirely new nation of people, very unique, very different from all the other people of the world, and I want you all to live by faith, and if, you, if you'll be my people, I'll be your God, and I want to just reset the whole human project again because it's run off the rails with you and your wife. So God calls Abraham from Ur of the Chaldees. And if you're not a you know, geography major, that's ancient Babylon. It's modern day Iraq in the, in, in the ancient Near East. 
And God goes to a man's house who's a Gentile and says, I'm going to make you a Jew. I'm going to make you a Hebrew. I'm going to make you God's people. And we're going to make Israel out of you. A brand new nation out of you that has never existed. Now, if you'll hear this and follow it away in your theological brain, you'll be light years ahead of other Christians. Israel is not only a nation. Israel is a concept in the mind of God. Israel is a concept that God will have a people of faith. A covenant people that will have a relationship with Him. Israel is not just biological Israel, not genealogical Israel. It is not just about circumcision Israel. It is not just I live in Israel. Israel Israel in the Bible is an idea. It's a concept. It would be like me saying to you, see, see, in the Bible, they say things like this. Not everyone who has a circumcision is Israel, but those who follow Jesus with all of their heart. It would be like me saying to you something like this. Not everyone with a blue passport is American, but all of those who love liberty and freedom are American. Does that make sense? It's bigger than nationality. It's an idea that God will have a people. And so you're not going to understand what you're reading in the Bible if you don't understand that Israel's not always Israel. Israel is sometimes you. It's me. It's other people other than Abraham's genealogical, biological DNA, actual children. So Abraham and Sarah go to this destination and God begins to make a new people with them. Are you ready for plot twist? Plot twist. Plot twist. Sarah's barren and cannot conceive children. Now, does anybody right here want to say, God, what the heck, man? You're going to build a new nation and you chose a man who's old and a woman who can't conceive children. You're a genius. Why would God do that? Why why would God do that? To show you that he's God. To show you that if you, in this modern era, living in Tarrant County, will step out by faith, there's nothing that God can't do. And if He calls you to do it, He will do it, even if the world says it can't be done. Uh, I can't tell you how many young couples have come to us over our ministry and through my dad's ministry before me and have come and said, we've been trying, 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 can't conceive children. And we say, well, let's just have a season of prayer here. Listen, our own Ezekiel, our best disciple in India, came to us, mom, you and, you and I were there in India in a team of people and Ezekiel and Sharon came to us and we've been trying for years, we can't conceive children. Uh, they probably want us to pray right now and turn it off. They, they, they got a house filled with little girls now, four little stair-step girls. Listen, many of you have come and said, I remember the day uh, Will and Nicole came in here and, and finally said, we've been trying and our hearts are broken, we can't conceive children, told us their situation. And a church prayed over them. And one year later on Christmas, a baby was born. Beautiful little girl. Don't tell God what's impossible. God will tell you it's possible if he asks you to do it. And so Abraham and Sarah, a woman who, uh, plot twist, she can't, she can't is. God makes a covenant, special kind of promise. A covenant's not just a promise. A covenant is a promise where you sacrifice something and something is cut. So the language used in the Old Testament is cutting a covenant. 
This is kind of the language they would use in the ancient world. We're going to make a solemn promise, Damon and I, and we're going to kill something, and we're going to walk between the pieces that we put on the altar, and we're going to cut a covenant right here between you and me. And when we make this covenant, there are conditions. If I break it, this is what will happen. If you break it, this is what will happen. And we're going to live in this covenant agreement. And God wants a covenant people. God made a covenant with Adam. Adam and Eve broke it. Punishment, sin ensued. God made a covenant with Abraham. He reestablished the covenant with Moses at Mount Sinai. And Israel broke it a million times in the Old Testament. So when you're reading the Old Testament, you say, why is God so ticked? He wanted a people. Why has he clobbered them? Because they've broken the covenant and gone after idols. And one of the covenant rules was, if you do this, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make it unto thee any graven image. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. You, you remember the Sabbath day? He starts giving them covenant conditions. And they broke them all the time. And God said, you just keep breaking my covenant, and yet you want me to keep blessing you. You want to be called my people, and you want me to keep doing this for you, and this for you. And God, I need this, and God, I need a job, and God, I need better relations, God, I need a wife, and God, I need blessings, and God, I need your favor, and God, I need this. And you constantly break my heart by not loving me and going after idols. This is the story of the Old Testament. So God raises up a group of people called prophets. Prophets are covenant enforcers. Now, if you've never understood what a prophet is in the Old Testament, it's a hairy old guy who steps on the scene, and sometimes a woman, hold up, they'll step on the scene. I'm going to say she's a hairy old woman, she's just a woman. Matter of fact, she's a brilliant teacher, we'll talk about her later. And God calls prophets to, to rise on the occasion, and prophets are covenant enforcers. The prophets stand up on the stage in their generation, they say, Hey, Israel! You're supposed to be God's people. You're in a covenant relationship with Him. And your knuckleheads are breaking all the rules. And you're going after idols. And you think God's not going to show up somewhere along the way and spank His children? Have you not read about Adam and Noah and Babel? And, and that's what a prophet is. So when you're reading in your Bible and you read, the Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Isaiah, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Haggai, Zechariah, and all the rest. When you're reading through those books and you're like, gosh, the Old Testament is so angry. Now you know why. Now you know why. It's not that God is angry all the time. It's that he has an idea that he would love some people to follow him and love him and have a heart for him. But he just can't seem to find any people who want to love him back. I have two and a half pages. I'm out of time. I'm going to pick this story up next week. Let me ask you a question. Are you those people? Are you those people? Do you feel like some right, somewhere right now in your heart, the Holy Spirit saying, "Wow, I'd like to be God's people. I'd like to give it a crack." God, if you're still looking for people, what Isaiah say? Here am I, Lord. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. I, you can use the altar if you want to this morning, or you can make an altar of your chair. 
Here's how simple it is. Are you willing to say right now, Lord, here am I? I've heard the story. God, how incredibly patient you are with us. (laughs) How incredibly long-suffering you've been with Bobby Harrell. Fill your name in right there. God, how incredibly patient you have been with me. I'm going to speak to several different groups of people. For those of you who have been saved 5, 10, 20, 30 years, listen to me carefully. God's been incredibly patient with you. He has saved you by His grace. He loves you so much. But if you've been saved 5, 10, 20, 30 years, it's very likely you have taken your eye off the ball. Very likely. It happens to all of us. And it's very likely you have forgotten the story of which you are a player. You are a character in this story of the Bible. If we were going to write a whole new New Testament, you would be the people that we would either be saying, yeah, they chased money. America got so prosperous, they just chased money, pleasure. All anybody was worried about was how to be comfortable, how to never miss a meal, how to live the easiest, most comfortable life we could live. We were consumed with that and that alone. And we had forgotten, God, that you wanted a people. Listen, if you've been saved a while, here's what I'm asking you to do. Rededicate your life to Christ right now. Whether it's at your seat or at this altar. And maybe it helps if you come to the altar. I don't know. But somewhere, get alone with God right now. And get on your knees and you say to God, God, here am I. God, we made a transaction. We made a covenant a long time ago. For me, it was when I was a little boy. And God, I gave my life to you and I asked you to forgive me of my sins. And I promised you would be the Lord and King of my life. And God, maybe I've forgotten that covenantal moment I made with you. And all I've been doing is saying, God, I need. God, I want. God, would you give me? God, I need. God, I want. And God, I've forgotten until this morning. I was created to be your people I'm supposed to be changing this world by living by faith God I'm supposed to be making a difference in this world by loving overcoming evil with good and love and light dispelling darkness God I forgot Holy Spirit lives in me you live in me And I've gotten to where I can just turn off your voice and ignore it. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. But God, I also know you're the God of a fresh start because we've seen it in your word this morning. Over and over again, you give the humans you love so much a fresh start. God, we need a fresh start right here in this room this morning. We need a fresh shot at being God's people. I want you to pray this way this morning. I want you to say to God, God, I know you're the God of a second chance and a fresh start, and I want one this morning. 
Some of you are living great lives, and I'm not being critical at all. You may want to modify that prayer and say, God, I've been really trying lately, but even I would like a fresh start this morning. A little do-over. I'm going to have my ears tuned to your spirit. My hands are yours. My feet are yours. This mind that you've given me is yours. My eyes and my lips are yours. God, I'm yours. And I know you want a people and I want to be counted among those people. Christians are working out their prayer right now all over the room. I want to speak to anyone here who doesn't know Christ as your Savior. This story's making a little bit of sense to you this morning and you're understanding how much God loves people. I didn't tell you the New Testament part of the story where finally He sent His Son to die on the cross to pay for all of our sin and all of our wickedness and all of our rebellion. He loved us so much, He knew we couldn't fix the mess, so He sent His Son to fix the mess for us. And He gave His life because He loves you. And that's not the end of the story. He rose again the third day to be your living Savior. And this morning, if you'll say to Him, I want to be your people too. I want my sins forgiven. He will forgive them and He'll make you His child. Adopt you right into His family this morning by a simple prayer of faith. Faith is believing that the unseen things are real, that God is real. You pray to Him right now as if you believe. Pray like this, Dear God, I I believe You're hearing my prayer right now. Jesus, I believe You're the Son of God. I believe You are everything the Bible declares You to be. In the best way that I know how this morning, I confess to you that I'm a sinner. I've lived in rebellion. I've lived for myself. And this morning, I want to ask you to forgive me of my sin and my rebellion. I want to be your people. I want to be your child, part of your family. So, Lord, I ask you to forgive me of my sins this morning. Come into my heart and into my life. Holy Spirit, you're welcome to come and inhabit me as a living temple of God. I dedicate my life to you. I am from this moment your people. You are my God and you are my King. Thank you for loving me. Forgive me for all of that sin and rebellion. Thank you for loving me. And giving me a new life this morning in Jesus Christ. A fresh start on life. I love you. And I'll serve you. In Jesus name.